that most wonderful time of the year, just mere moments until Christmas, and I'm terribly, terribly excited. Welcome to the show. With me today, Luke Kamali. Hello. Daniel Krupa. Hi. And Chris Tilley. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, no. Chris isn't here today. He's, uh, he's um, inconvenienced. Let's put it that way. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> he needs a nice little lie down. <laughs> Uh, loads of interesting guests on the show today. We have Dane DeHaan. We have the bloke that played Harry Potter. What's he called? Dennis Runtcliffe. That's right. Dennis Runtcliffe. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the directors... Yes, um, of Frozen, of Jennifer Frozen. Lee and Chris Buck. Which I'm very excited about. All these people to come on the podcast. It's going to be absolutely packed. We've got a bumper crop of Reader F you as well. We do. Uh, but as usual, let's start with what's been happening in the world of video games and movies this week. Yes, yeah, so let us begin. Um, okay, so Gran Turismo 6 uh, has microtransactions. We knew that, but the game is out um, today. And so we now know more about prices. Mm -hmm. So you can buy packs of in-game credits. It's the first game in the Gran Turismo franchise in which you can do this. So you can buy them in denominations of half a million, a million, two and a half million, or seven million. Um, the cheapest pack is three ninety nine, and the most expensive is thirty nine ninety nine. Forty quid. Forty quid. Forty, 40. of your British pounds. Wow. Um, so obviously you can buy you can buy cars in the game. It transpires if you want to buy the most expensive car in the game, mm. which is the Jaguar. XJ13, mm. uh, that costs you 20 million credits. So in real-world money, if you want to buy that from the start, you will have to put down £119.95. pennies. That's to buy a car in a video game. Uh, so yeah, you it's know. not actually a tangible thing Plus that you side, can touch. No ta tax disc. You're yeah, they're, they're phasing out tax discs anyway. This is very true. Not tax. There you go. Mm -hmm. Not tax. So, so that's a thing. Um, and people are being quite upset about that, really. Um, it just seems well, to be... I mean, it's, it's up to them, though, isn't it? I mean, if you want to spunk away 120 quid on buying something that you don't actually have, then yeah. so be it. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I mean, the thing is, the point that Shuha Yoshida, Sony's Shuha Yoshida's made, is that you can still get away with, you know, everything that you can buy in the game can be done just through playing the game yeah, and grinding. Yeah, but how many hours of grinding would it take you to... Uh, That's the terrible You'll face it up, then. Yeah. Good. So, basically, I don't know, I think it's a waste of money, but some people are busy and have lives in which they need to do things and so need to be able to take shortcuts. But I think it's, it's dangerous and it could... It's the thin end of the wedge. It is, and it's going to ruin the world. So, Get out of games. Pretty much. Depression. Or anything else, just games? Just Will it games. ruin any, anything else? Probably. Mm. I don't know what. Okay. Morals are all low, anyway. News from Krupa! So this bit of news, which was written by a rather excellent Luke Kamali, he's Thanks. writing all the news though. I've never. Um, it says Nintendo isn't affected by fan campaigns or petitions. This comes from the head of Nintendo of America, Reggie um, Phillips Stake. He <laughs> says that the thing we know about petitions is that 100,000 100, signatures yeah. doesn't mean 100,000 sales. I have to tell you, it doesn't affect what we do. We certainly look at it, and we're certainly aware of it, but it doesn't necessarily affect what we do. So, the headline for that story is, Nintendo doesn't care what you think. Is that right? Uh, no, I went for a tamer one this time, because I was, you know, tired. And <laughs> it was just like, let's You didn't behave. want to start another flame war. Yeah, pretty much. Well, that's probably good, like, you know. I think if you've got a vision, if you've got a vision of what you want to do... Do it. Yeah. Mm. You don't exactly. just go because people go, exactly. all right, because people don't know what they want because no. people by and large are idiots. Pretty much. 
So that was in relation to Operation Rainfall, which um, in was about to Operation U Tree. Uh, similar, right? Um, but basically, they said it was a couple of years ago, and they got three uh, wee titles, Japanese wee titles, localized for the West, and everyone was like, "Yes, look at the power of us!" And Nintendo were like, <laughs> "Fuck off! It's not you." We decided to do it because we wanted to make money. Did anybody buy these games? Uh, one was Xenoblade Chronicles, one was uh, The Pandora. Last Story, and the other was Pandora's Tower. Xenoblade did but all right. At least, uh, they sold at least four copies. There you go. That's, more, that. we, that's least, more than we least, used. At least of. four. Yeah. And that was um, us going by my sources. There you go. So, Who are your sources? Journalistic. Don't, don't yeah, reveal. you don't reveal them. So. And the I'll take the record. it to court, man. No, I don't care. But it's true. People don't know what they want. You find this quite a lot where in product design, product testing, when you first put a new a brand new product in front of consumers, usually the words they use to describe it are, I don't like it. Even though over time, they'll actually think it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Very often, usually, oh, no, I don't like it, don't understand it, it's yeah. weird. New is scary. Oh, new really? It's like whenever they change Facebook or Twitter or everything, and everyone's like, nope, and then within like two weeks, you yeah, can't remember how I it used to be. I just still don't like the Facebook timeline. I think it's the biggest load of shit ever. Yeah, I suppose. You don't think that about Facebook Not... in general? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah there, that, there that, that's the general maybe a, That's partly because problem. it seems to be, it's gone from being just a simple web page to being like a fucking operating system that takes over your computer. Yeah. If I try and look at Facebook on my office PC, which is not an underpowered PC, it's a fairly ninja piece of kit, mm. it just crashes, it hangs everything, really? yeah. and I have to restart Chrome. It's shit and bollocks. Shit and bollocks, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, you can have that. In other stupid news for stupid people, <laughs> Lindsay Lohan is apparently going to sue Rockstar over GTA Five. I love this. This has been on the site for a few days now, this story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's coming out of TMZ, who, who are the most... Preposterous. They're shit peddlers, yeah, but you know. Shit peddlers. I think I had a pair of those once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Liable. Anonymous okay. sources have revealed Lowen One's compensation for the unapproved use of her likeness. Because basically, there's a couple of youngish looking women in the game mm. who do things. Yeah. And that doesn't look like Lindsay Lowen no, anymore. No. So. no. I mean, the, you know, the in-game mission task players with escorting Lacey Jones away from the paparazzi, yeah, early part of the game. TMZ suggests Lowen thinks Lacey's been designed to resemble her. But uh, here's the thing, I don't think it is, right? Surely it's to do with just the fact that that's the kind of culture of Hollywood at the moment, you know, paparazzi hounding people. Think yeah. it's, not, it's not her specifically. It, it, she wasn't the first. Yeah, and she's definitely not been the last. And, but here's a, the other bit is uh, the piece of art where everybody's seen that piece of art for a game which shows the woman holding an iFruit phone. Yeah. Apparently, it resembles Lowen. Insofar as it has two arms, two legs, and a head. Yeah. I thought it was supposed to be like that model. Well, this it's, thing It's supposed to be Kate Upton. Well, it's supposed to be Kate Upton, and like people have got a photo of Kate Upton and kind of like done a bit by bit kind of transfer. But then last year, someone came out, Shelby. Shelby Wellinder. Yeah. So uh, and she's out. actually brought a paycheck out to say, look, I was paid for this. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know, but it does look like Kate Upton. So I, we, to be honest, we don't know who it is. To be honest, but I don't care. Yeah. There's a woman who it looks like, there's a woman who claims it her, and then there's Lindsay Lohan in the back being like, Shut also, what's something I quite enjoy is that um, she's claiming that that blonde version of her, the image of the blonde woman, is like, that's me. And then similarly in the suit, she claims that there's a red-headed actress yeah. who's also her. It's like... Make uh, your mind up, you leathery old witch. <laughs> <laughs> she's 20. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a hard life. Long, yeah. long paper round. Hard life. Taking drugs. <laughs> while delivering papers and getting... Oh. What? Oh, oh. Steady on. Um, so yes, we have more news. More news. Very exciting. Wow. Um, so the PlayStation 4 has sold over 2.1 million units globally. The PlayStation um, what now? PlayStation 4. What did I say? Is this new? Yeah. Kind of new. 
Oh, Fairly new. When did that come out? Uh, that came out on December the 3rd. The, uh, this news. Heard nothing about it, have you? No. This news? This is news. Yep. What? Yeah, so the PlayStation 4 has sold over 2.1 million units. Look alive, guys. Yeah. 2.1 million. That's, a lo- that's worldwide, yeah? That's worldwide, yep. Um, and bear in mind, it had a staggered launch, so it released in the States on the 15th of November and released here in Europe and Australasia um, on the 29th. Xbox One was 22nd. Very right. There you go. Oh, oh facts check. Blunder, blunder, blunder. Blunder bus. What? All aboard the blunder bus. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. It's selling quite well. It's doing saying. very well, basically. It's um, outselling the Xbox One, yeah? Yes, yeah, I believe no, so. Yeah. Well, it, d- it did in the UK anyway. So it's the fastest selling console ever in the UK, selling 250,000 units in, 20, in 48 hours. Uh, the Xbox One managed 150,000 in 48 hours. Mm. So, um, not quite double, but... But, you know, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. It is indeed. That's, mm. that's the exciting thing. Yeah. Um, not a Snickers. A Snickers, not a sprint. Hang on, a Snickers, not a Bounty. O2? It's Opal Fruits, what, what are they? Well, made to sprint, make your ass water. It's American telephone network, so what would the equivalent be over? It's a Snickers, not an orange. No, EE. <laughs> It's just rubbish. We're just talking rubbish. Pretty much. I wish we had Tilly's steady hand here. Just to make <laughs> just sure steady that hand on the Tilly. By that I mean oh, Tiller. Oh, you see? I see what you did there. Yeah. That's very good. Could have made that better, but that was all right. Have I, am I, if I didn't, so I'm not going to get a, a PS4 now if I haven't ordered one, am I? There's none I'm, in the country this side of Christmas. Well, on Amazon today. Unavailable. Yeah, Sony, Sony held some stock back, so you can get of them. Of course he did. Um, <laughs> God, fucking warehouses, follow them. Yeah. <laughs> follow them, I tell you. Um, but they want to sell 3 million by the end of the year and 5 million by at uh, the end of March. So they're, they're on track, I would argue. Hey, if you want to buy one from CEX, yeah. a pre-owned one, yeah. do you know how much it is? No. 520 quid. Really? Yeah. Whoa. That makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. But that's what they're... they're, they're, they're apparently, they're paying really good wedge for second-hand ones. You know, if you... Pre-owned, and they're selling them at a premium because of the stock shortages. Well, you know, if you go to trade in... Um, you know, Amazon, if you've bought one from Amazon, it says like, hey, you can trade it in here for this. Um, Amazon will let you trade it in and they will give you a credit of 25 pennies. So... What? Yeah, they're like, trade this in, get a voucher for 25p. PS4? 25p? Yeah, it's one of those automated things on the side. I don't Uh, think they've really worked it out. I did it. I did it. I did it. I did it. It was great. Great. It'd be all right if it was just the box. How much CEX giving? Like, trade in? I don't know, but apparently it's it's high. It's a high amount. Well, yeah, presumably it must be more than... It costs to buy one fresh. Otherwise, why would you, you? You wouldn't trade in a new PS4 for a loss, right? You wouldn't, would you? Right. Unless, unless you were like Kilby and just been given loads of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's another PS4. Oh, what do I do with them? He's built a fort. That's what he's he? done, and he lifts a PS them. fort. A PS fort. Boom! We're on fire now. Um, last bit of news, which we actually haven't brought in. Uh, idiot buys a next generation box. Oh yes. For a stupid amount of money. Oh, piece of paper, yeah. So someone from e- on eBay. Oh, that's it. Even yeah. worse than a box. On eBay, he bought, it was like a photo of an Xbox I mean, One. It did say photo in the listing, didn't it? It says photo in the listing. And um, he was like, uh, I bought it. Um, it did say photo, but I checked the feedback. And um, he had nothing but positive feedback. So I did not think that I would be conned in this manner. Um, so he paid 450 quid, got a photo of an Xbox One in the a phone. A really bad inkjet yeah, printout. And, and my yeah. favourite part is that, to add insult to injury, on the back of the photo, they've written, thanks for your purchase in big childish writing. It's like, you know, way to right. kick someone when they're down. Uh, what, who, the person I feel sorry for is his four-year-old son who yeah. he's buying it for. Why bought- is a four-year-old getting an Xbox One? He's not with FIFA. Not for his son Ridiculous. at all. No. Using it. He was like, I want a day one edition. I don't know. It just sounds a bit... I don't know, though, because he's complained to eBay 
but you'd be a bit like, you know, I'd kind of argue clearly that it's clearly the, stated in the, the list. It was in the wrong category, though. What category was it in? Like, hardware. Oh, okay. Technically, a piece of paper is hardware. <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's software. Is there a stationary section? It depends how many grams per square meters thickness it is, I suppose. Oh, yeah. If you're oh, looking yeah. at around about 180 GSM, the GISM. that would technically be hardware. Yeah. Anything lighter, like your 80 GSM copy of paper, that's probably software. Call it GISM, Stu. Call it what it is. What now? It's GISM. GISM. There you go. Still to come on today's podcast, Dane Dehan and the little fellow with the glasses. <laughs> Krupa, that that's is. the one. He's worth 60 million. What? Grouper. <laughs> no, the other little fellow with the glasses. Uh, before that, though, uh, we... <laughs> Shush. Sorry. I'm trying to do a link here. I'm trying to do a posh link. Daniel Kruper, little fellow with the glasses. <laughs> little fellow with the glasses. This is like, this turning into Morecambe and Wise, isn't it? <laughs> Get out of that. You spoke to Frozen people. Well, no, I spoke to the directors of Frozen. Oh. Written that go, down. Go wrong. Um, yeah. Good. This is what they said. Okay, today we're joined by Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck, the directors of Frozen. So I saw Frozen a couple of weeks ago with my mum. She was down in London visiting, and I absolutely loved the film. Like, I genuinely loved it. I loved it so, so much. And when we were leaving the cinema, it was an advanced preview screening, and I nipped to the bathroom, and my mum got collared by someone from Disney, and they said, did your son enjoy the movie? Did your little son enjoy the movie? She thought, <laughs> and my mum went, well, he's 27, and he reviews films for a living, but he absolutely loved it. Um, and I, the review's been great. It's had a record-breaking box office in the US. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like? Yes. I mean, we had hoped for, you know, people to really enjoy it and embrace it, but it was way more than our expectations. And yeah, I'm really excited. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it was a really fun weekend. Yeah, it was uh, Last great. weekend in the States. Is it quite nerve-wracking in the moments before? Just... I think so. I, you know, I think so. Yes. I know so. <laughs> um, you know so. Well, I know so. I think it's, it's your, you can start to feel it in the studio and you feel it as, um, you know, previews have gone and some people have seen early screenings and you feel that there's something special happening, but then you fear it's all going to come crashing down. So <laughs> you're kind of waiting. <laughs> um, I was doing a bit of research and I read about, there's quite a few adaptations of the Snow Queen in production over the last 10, 15 years, maybe longer. And they've never really come to pass. Something's gone wrong or they've faulted. Um, is there anything from those previous projects that found its way into Frozen or is it basically started from scratch? It started from scratch. Um, I never just, I never watched any of the other versions just so I could sort of just stay, you know, sort of uh, clean about the whole thing. I didn't, I didn't want to be uh, influenced by anything. And just we went back to the book, the original book, and, um, you know, just sort of try to get the themes from that and inspiration from that. Now, we've, we've, we've done our own version of it, and, uh, but uh, I think that's it. Mainly just going back to the book and keeping that sort of the essence of that. So what is the essence of the book for people who might not be acquainted with it? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, the book is um, a story of a young girl who, uh, Gerda, who goes, sets out to save her friend who's been cursed by negativity. Uh, um, it's a, a troll's curse. And uh, he's kidnapped by the Snow Queen. And it's very dark, um, very poetic, symbolic and things. But the one thing it has a fantastic, th I mean, it has a lot of fantastic things. But the part that we really um, loved was the theme about the power of love 
versus fear or negativity. And um, but it was really hard um, story. Elsa, it, our Snow Queen in the, the Snow Queen in the original, you don't know anything about her. She's just evil for evil's sake. And we wanted to kind of make a very three dimensional character and know who she was. So that was where we went away from the uh, mm-hmm. the original. And, and the girl, and the girl uh, Gerda in the movie is very much Anna. She is all about love, and that's her. Where you have Elsa, whose superpower is creating ice and snow. Anna's superpower is the love, the love for her sister, and the love for for people. So, and that very much is Gerda in the book. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so Disney is obviously historically very well known for princess movies, and this isn't a princess movie. It's a film that has princesses in, but isn't about princess movies. Thank, Thank you. you. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we agree. But that, that kind of history, like Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, those very much like films of their time, where the happy ending is kind of settling down. But recent Disney movies, I think Enchanted and Tangled, in particular, did this excellently. Was it kind of tackled? that inheritance and adapted it and it made you know beginning the opening scene of Tangled is one of my favorite songs because she begins where every other Disney princess ends up which is in domestic bliss but actually it's her prison all she does every day is cook clean wash sew Um, (laughs) that would be mine as well yeah and it seems early on when I was watching Frozen almost like you're trying to set up a couple of those cliches like Anna falling in love instantly Um, was that something Something you want to tackle as a writer, kind of, mm-hmm. uh, kind of having a dialogue with those more traditional Disney films. No, I think you know. I think it was actually more about. I think there's a truth to those Disney films in terms of the way a lot of us approach love when we're teenagers or just starting out. And Anna's journey was about going from sort of that naive love to to understanding the most important kind of love and true love and, and sacrifice. And so I think. For us, it was just very natural. And, and we wanted, to, I think what we wanted to do was always look at the truth and everything that we all, when we grab onto these cliches, part of it, it's a cliche because a lot of people go through it. Or, and so we wanted to just set it up with a, in a genuine way and then sort of explore as you mature, as you go through life, uh, maybe you learn a little more about love. <laughs> Um, without like delving into spoilers, but the, the kind of the true love's kiss plays a part in the movie, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a kind of revered Disney trope. Mm-hmm. But you tackle it in a very different way. You put a different emphasis. Is that something that needed to be like signed off and approved? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it was, it was it was from the beginning. As Jen was saying, you know, we played with the idea of of uh, romantic love, and then there's real love. And, you know, romantic love for me, you know, that sort of first six months of your relationship where it's all candy and hearts and roses and it's all wonderful. Then a little bit later after that, real love kicks in. You know, the first argument, the first messy stuff, whatever it is, but you get through it. And so that's more the real love. And then the real love, we started playing with that. You know, what is that? And then the true love. What's an act of true love? You know, and how do we how do we play with that a little bit differently than we have in the past mm-hmm. with our Disney mm-hmm. And I think movies. I think bringing in concept of family, I think, was a huge thing of that uh, understanding sort of romantic love, messy love that is how you then decide this is the one you're going to build a family with and what's a family. So it was all, we really wanted to look at love um, and not just one type mm-hmm. um, in this. And uh, yeah. Right. So, um, 
Am I, oh, sorry, I'm just mentioning Tangle. Am I right? There's a brief cameo of Rapunzel in the movie. <laughs> I was reading about it, but I didn't spot it myself. It might be. It might be. You have to see it, you yeah? Have to, you have, we can't tell you where. <laughs> um, there's some attention being given to the title Frozen, not the Snow Queen, as there was mm -hmm. with Tangled not being called Rapunzel. Was that done for thematic reasons, or was that, again, a way to like, appeal to a broader audience or anything like that? Yeah, well, I think I think what we didn't want to do was say it back when, as we were developing the story that this was going to be the Snow Queen because we weren't sure. So it was really more about say thematically inspired by. I think now that you know, once in, you do a lot of changes in the story over years, and and. Um, as we looked at the title, some territories are calling it the Snow Queen because we did pull a lot of the essence. But I think we're also trying to say it's its own thing more than anything else. Mm -hmm. so, and thematically, it does yeah. work because you have characters who, like Anna and Elsa's relationship, is basically frozen. I mean, they are, as kids, they're they're split. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that, that whole thing and how they're going to get back together. So the title itself does work for several of the characters and especially Anna and mm -hmm. Elsa there. Yeah. Just to move on to um, the production of the film itself, you both come from quite different backgrounds and you're co-directors. How, where did you come from? How did you get to be at Disney? And how did you collaborate on this film? Mm -hmm. Do you want to? Uh, well, I've started, I started right out of school. I went to a college called CalArts. And, um, Which a lot of the Disney animators have. Yeah, I mean, I was in the, the classes with, with John Lasseter and uh, Brad Bird and Tim Burton and, you know, all those guys. He's so. in a short... He stars in a short that Tim Burton directed. Look it up on really? YouTube. Which, okay, okay. I'm in a short called Doctor of Doom. <laughs> it's, a, it's a small black and white featurette that Tim did with us. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a bad Mexican horror film. It's a badly dubbed Mexican horror film because Tim loves, you know, schlocky films and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, I play a character called Pepe Quesadilla. I play a Mexican maid. I, I'm sending. I'm sensing you're quite attached to this character. Quite, <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite I'm proud of it. I interrupt. Anyway, you. no, it's okay. That's where I really started. That's where I got my start. Um, no, anyway, so um, CalArts and then D Disney. I went to Disney and just uh, started as an animator there. In fact, on Fox and the Hound, and um, and went back and forth from different studios. And uh, but kind of grew up drawing and then and then uh, worked my way through storyboarding and, and character designing and then eventually directing. If you work in Disney, is there is there kind of a clearly delineated path to becoming a director Absolutely or it's like, not. They're, no, not, they're all now they're definitely different ways. For sure. <laughs> that's the segue in <laughs> no. Jen. Yeah, I, I was asked to come in um, and work on Wreck-It Ralph as a writer. Um, my co-writer, Phil Johnson, and I went to uh, film school together. We'd written together, not each other's not uh, done a script together but worked with each other a lot on our writing and um, so I met everyone at Disney that way and had a blast fell in love with animation and um, we, I started giving notes on Frozen because we do that we all meet um, every like few every 12 weeks or so and look at sort of where each other's films are and give a lot of notes and help each other and I was giving a lot of notes on Frozen really responding to it and they very asked, good notes well thank you <laughs> um, they asked me first to come on as a writer and then uh, a director so, so that's at what point did you make the transition to direct about five months in I think so it's mm -hmm. about a little like year and a half ago and we we didn't announce it for a while I think because you know what if it didn't work no I'm kidding <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh but it was it was great I think for us um 
we always had the same vision. I, I think yeah. that's how they knew to bring me on as a writer because we connected really. Um, I could see what he was seeing. And and then, you know, we have a very intense schedule. And um, we have, uh, we were in production while we were also working on the story. So we could divide and conquer a little and I would keep working with the story artists and keep the story going while he would go and do some animation and work with um, environments and things. But then we would always be together. We'd work with the musicians together. We tried to balance it, but it allowed us to um, kind of have, you know, all the engines running full steam by dividing when needed. So it was pretty cool. a lot of work. I mean, you're dealing with actually... Uh, when you look at the credits, uh, we have about 600 people in the credits. So we were juggling a yeah. lot of different things, a lot of different people that, that need answers. You know, the train is is running. running. I yeah. mean, it's racing down the track, and we're trying to keep up with everything. So it really helped having having the two of us. Um, so would you like to work in the collaboration again in the future? Do you think this is a good way to like do one of these big animated films, having these slightly different focuses or...? Well, Chris, now that we're in public, it's time I tell you. No, <laughs> I'm <laughs> leaving you behind. Yeah, absolutely. No, we're, we 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 have we have talked a lot about that and how we just seem yeah. to really fit, and we feel very lucky. And uh, John Lasser and Ed Catmull saw it, and and and. Uh, well, I think we both we're, both like you said, we come from different places and um, with different strengths, but I think that's what makes the movie and we see someone walking someone's by. walking on the ceiling i don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but anyway we 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 really complement each other yeah. i think and um and it just seems to work yeah it's great um let's talk a bit more about the kind of look and design of the film you talked mm-hmm. about um you know giving the film that timeless quality and i know when um you know Animation Studio made this shift to digital animation there's obviously some people are fearful that some mm-hmm. of that quintessential disney magic is going to be lost mm-hmm. but how do you retain that how do you like translate that to a digital animated movie mm-hmm. is it actually not that big a problem is it more the the people really i don't think yeah. i think it is the people i think what it, it, it is you're just giving new tools to the same artists who created the disney magic in hand-drawn now they're creating the same disney magic in cg um and it's more the you know what their imagination can do because they can create new software, um, but we have to at least think of it first, it, it, or mm-hmm. you know, come up with the ideas for it. So our effects artists come up with the, those ideas. Um, we also have a lot of hand-drawn people who artists who uh, did uh, tests, character tests, animation tests, and that helped with the CG guys as they started modeling the characters and did their tests. And same with effects. In fact, there are actually some hand-drawn effects in the movie itself that work with the the CG effects. And I think the key is, like, what I've learned coming in, um, you know, um, I say as an outsider, but that sounds weird, but coming in um, the last few years is you really see how you take the inspiration from reality and you take what the computers can do, and that always makes for a very kind of authentic feeling world and environment. But you never go for realism. You you want to go for what makes animation special, and there's a caricature style, and if anything, it makes it more believable and more characters feel more alive. So we had our hand-drawn artists very involved, even in the CG. Mark Henn, who's a legendary hand-drawn artist, would be in the animation room every, every day helping to push particularly, you know, the expressions and some of the lines um, uh, to make it keep that that 
thing that makes animation so special. And I, and I think that's been a, they've been really great at working on that balance. I think it's one of the, that's what makes this movie and Disney movies so special mm-hmm. is that we do have a combination more than any other studio of mm-hmm. you know, the, the amazing hand-on artists and then, and then the CG artists. So you've worked on a lot of kind of traditionally animated movies. Mm-hmm. Um, working on directing Frozen, is there anything that's in Frozen that you can't imagine doing using more traditional techniques? Did this have to be a kind of... Well, I think the ice and the snow, I think mm. they're so amazing in CG, and I think that would have been very difficult, especially the ice and how to get that beautiful reflective light, refraction, all of the, the colors. Um, and then there's also some stuff, you know, like in the clothing, there's, we have beautiful clothing. Very elaborate, beautiful. Very. Yeah. And a lot of times in, in hand-drawn, we'd always say, can we put stripes on the coats? No, we can't afford that or we can't draw that. Can we put polka dot? No, we can't. Do it. So, you know, things are very simple. They're much simpler in hand-drawn, but I think now we have a lot of time to play with Yeah, we did in this details. film. Twice the amount of cloth simulation of all our films combined. <laughs> so wow. yeah. we, we we pushed it a little bit with that. We had so fun. Lots of research done into snow and ice and Tons. things like this. Like. Yeah, and everything. I mean, um, we we had uh, we sent a crew to the ice hotel. He went. You can talk about that. We had the ice hotel in Quebec City, uh, but I didn't. I I decided not to stay overnight. That was a choice. That was insane. Anybody who does that, but anyway. um, But I did do a tour, and I thought that it was beautiful. You know, we saw it in different different lights in there, and and again, how the light would would come through the ice. Things like going into the frozen. I was thinking, you know. Film dominated by snow, but it's actually a tremendously colorful movie. Uh, as very well. colorful. Is that important to keep that kind of aspect in it? Well, our, yeah. yeah, our art director, Mike Giamo, who's just a brilliant uh, artist, he was excited by that because he said, basically, I have a white canvas to work with. Yeah. And oh, he could give us want. all these different colors, you know, the reflection from the sky and all these and things. And the color so. is a huge, it's, it, there's an emotional language to the color through the whole film. And, and we, what I love is, is we were able to constantly root it in a sense of reality in that, you know, dawn, day, how ice reflects at dawn versus sunset versus noon and use that as a way to tell the emotional story. Um, and then we'd push it. We'd be a little theatrical every now and then, but... Yeah. Um, it was it was it was a blast. Um, but one of the things our biggest trip we have to say was to Norway. Um, we well, who, don't say our. Yeah, we didn't. Well, our <laughs> our quote because we were stuck we in the story room. To go. Um, but we sent the <laughs> whole directors. I know the art department. Um, I, I had just they were there when I came on the project that week, so I I, I, I couldn't. But. Um, to Norway, and they brought back so much, and it, it was so inspirational, particularly because you had the intimacy of the the Norwegian um, folk art and rose mauling in the in the stave churches and the wood um, villages, and and that was so intimate. And then you had it against these vast fjords with epic giant you know mountains that drop off, and so we knew it was just such a perfect inspiration for sort of this intimate little. Setting and, and you said it's not really a princess movie. It's not. It's I mean, these girls have a lot of pressure on them because they're ruling a kingdom, but they're right there with the people. There's no, they're not up on some yeah. big castle yeah, somewhere. There's not a big divide. There's it, not a resentment from the right. people. Right. It's no. very connected and very intimate. And then you throw them out into this huge um, uh, wilderness and, and wild mountain landscape. So it was it was a really perfect inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, just a segue to the music, and the songs have got a lot of attention because the songs are 
fantastic in the movie. Um, I was interesting as a, as a writer, kind of one of the principal rules of storytelling is show, don't tell. But lyrical content has to be quite explicit. You know, you have yeah. to like, has to be written large. How would you work with the, the lyricists? Do you have much yeah. input or like, what's well, the relationship it's, like? It's, it was an everyday back and forth. Yeah. It was like chicken and egg a lot with, with the shape of scenes versus songs. And, and you're right, we do have the exact opposite jobs. So part of it is getting out of each other's way, but also saying what we need. So, because my job is to evoke and not state things. And their job is to find that hook that states yeah. it and really... You go in as kind of crudely and say, well, well, this is the scene here. This is where the song we need to get... By the end of the song, we need to get to this place emotionally and story-wise. Or we do yeah. do that, but it's it like I say, we, it's a back and forth where it is a lot. yeah and they were just as much a part of the story shaping as okay. as we were. They really are. They're both. It's it's Bobby Lopez and Kristen mm -hmm. Anderson Lopez, and Bobby, you know, has won a, a Tony for Book of Mormon and then Avenue Q. So um, they're both great storytellers. Mm -hmm. They're both very creative. They're both. Um, you know, it's very fresh. We're excited by what they would do with a, a Disney movie. And, um, but yeah, it was a lot of, of back and forth. And I think they pushed us to really define the characters more. They need a very clear idea of who these characters are before they write a song for them. You know, whether it's a, a snowman who's, whose wish is to see summer or... You know, a, a young girl who who wants to see more. You know, beyond what she's she's got in the castle there. So, um, but they need a very clear idea. And sometimes, as we're we're defining these characters, we have a lot of ideas mm -hmm. for these characters. And they would say, "Just give us one, <laughs> give us that one idea, Thank and then we one. can play from there." And that really, I think, strengthened the movie and just became, you know, things became yeah, and very they, and clear. It was very, what was amazing is as we discover a song, and we, I mean, they wrote a lot of songs that didn't make it in because, and I wrote a lot of scenes that I had to rewrite. It was, we would always go back and forth. And once we landed on a song, then I'd kind of take a pass through the whole script mm -hmm. because you wanted, we wanted everything to be seamless. We yeah. wanted you to kind of, the songs to keep moving the story forward or, or reveal something new about yeah. the characters or explore one of the themes. And so to do that, we had to really weave them in. So the first song really helps with the passage of time. Yeah. Like it's a really effortless yeah. way to skip ahead many years. Yeah, yeah. That, and that was, the, that was actually the most challenging song, I think, Do You Want to Build a Snowman, where we go across over time. Mm -hmm. What do we show? What's the tone? Mm -hmm. So we have that was a lot difficult. of in it. That actually, was the, the very first, first time they wrote it, it was all, all very sad. Yeah. The whole song was very sad, and uh, we just thought we don't want to start the movie with like that, and we had to have some more, something more upbeat. Mm -hmm. And it was where they started rewriting it, and it became you got to know more about Anna and Anna as a child and as she grows up, but her positive spirit. Yeah, and how and the she, fun even being alone, her, she's her, tossing, right. she's making friends with the portraits and, and tossing herself around the mm -hmm. castle and doing stunts, so you knew the kind of girl she was going to become. And so, but that was a lot. And of it made and the forth. emotion at the end of it stronger. Mm -hmm. It was a whole. It was it was mm -hmm. very sad at the very end, but the rest of it was was more. Yeah, upbeat. that was the last uh, the last thing that we. I mean, we worked that for a year. <laughs> that that one took the longest. Really? Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite song in the movie? Oh, it changes. I, I, I mean, it does change. I mean, obviously, "Let It Go" is an amazing song. I'd say for the whole studio, it, it's. 
yeah, Let It Go is we Let It Go is great. That I mean, song yeah. got us through a lot of of crazy nights and hard work. <laughs> by and playing. then on the other end of it, there's you know Olaf's song, the In Summer, which is just this goofy sort yeah. of wish song. And um, but you know, we really it, it depends on where you're at. You know, what day it is, <laughs> what's your yeah. favorite song? Because I, I I love so many of them. So, but in terms of translating them into kind of visually arresting sequences, does it begin for you with when the song's finished, then marking out sections, or those, mm-hmm. I imagine those section sequences are much more difficult to animate because they're fast and yeah. We have amazing storyboard artists, and and they all have different strengths, and some of them are really fantastic at songs, mm. and um. And I remember a great with in summer um, with Olaf's song. Uh, Jeff Ranjo, who's a, a fantastic board artist, he just boarded these beats uh, quickly because we we were going to screen the movie and look at it, and it was that was it. It was so perfect. It went right to production animation. So and then let it go took a lot longer because that that you were building the emotion of it and and. Um, we pulled in one of our directors, Dean Wellens, who's a great artist, and he he boarded that for us and really worked tremendously hard. So it it really depends on um, on the song, but but yeah, some some of the artists just really get get song boarding. And sometimes there's visual development done before yeah. they write the song. We know what the sequence has to be. And so Bobby and Christian will get the visuals beforehand, and they love that because that helps. That's that inspires them. We did so that with the trolls. There is that back and yeah. forth that, that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, so Frozen's out. It's opening in the UK this weekend. What's kind of next? I know this is still very much happening and dominating <laughs> your lives, but do you would you like to work together in the future? You said you yeah. feel very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we really we make a great team. Um, I think what's next is a break. Some rest. Well for us. Rest. Yeah, yeah I know. went right from Ralph to Frozen without I wasn't even finished with Ralph. I was doing both at the same time for a couple months there. So I'm I'm I might <laughs> collapse. Um, and I but. pitched this about five years ago, so I've been off and on. Yeah. It's been it's been a long one. I'm very proud of it, but yeah. Then I'm excited. We get to it's like we get to um, it's Disney's a very it's a director driven filmmaker driven yeah. studio, so we get to go off and dream up something new and and. Yeah, really it's an Olaf trilogy, that. I think, that we need to, <laughs> need to work on. <laughs> um, you mentioned Ralph briefly, and um, our audience, it would be remiss of me not to talk about video <laughs> games ever so briefly. Um, is Wreck-It Ralph 2 a possibility? Would you be, because the director's mentioned it in passing. Has he? Yeah. Rich. Hmm. Um, no. <laughs> is that something you would be interested in returning to that world and... I love that world. That's all I can say. I love. I love it. I, I love those characters. I think they're fantastic. I think there's so much that can be done with them. So we'll see. And also, <laughs> like, video games in general. Like yeah. I predominantly write about video games because I think they're really exciting. They've yeah. been around for thirty years, and they're at the intersection of so many different arts: the moving image, design, acting. Yeah. Um, is that something you'd be interested in ever working in video games, like exclusively? Like, this video games are again becoming yeah. more narrative, like having more narrative sophistication than ever mm-hmm. before. I don't know. Would if that I'm excite sp- you as a writer I, or as a director? I don't know <laughs> if I'm smart enough. I have to. I love. I am so. I have such admiration for people who develop video games and I love video games and particularly like you know the role-playing really complex ones and um and uh my daughter is now obsessed with Minecraft and uh I don't know how child is my daughter she's 10 and she's she's obsessed with Minecraft yeah and um I look at them like how did they do it so I, I mean I think it's so cool I just I feel like I'm 
I could my brain's not that developed. <laughs> well, I think, and, and as a filmmaker, <laughs> I mean, I see what my my sons have been playing too. They've been playing since the Halo days, and yeah. you know, they're yeah. just they love all of that. And um, but I think it, 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 you know, I look at the graphics and I look at the storytelling that they're doing, and I go, oh my gosh, every year, every few months, yeah. it just it's gets insane. better and better and better. So, as a filmmaker, I think it's it could be very exciting. Yeah. Like you, like you say, Jen, I don't know. I don't know don't if I'm know smart if I'm enough smart to handle it. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time. Um, Frozen's out in the UK this weekend. And yeah. I, like I said at the beginning, I think it's one of the best Disney films I've seen for a long, long while. Wow, well, uh, thank you so uh, much. You. Great to be thank here. You. Thank, thank you. Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee, co-directors of Frozen, which you've seen. Yeah. And you loved. Yeah. And she also um, wrote Wreck-It Ralph. Oh. I had mixed reviews, Wreck-It Ralph, didn't it? <laughs> Didn't bring that up in the interview, so... Did you not? <laughs> Fair enough. So you like, I'm going to go and see Frozen this weekend. You should. I'm going to. I'm as, not as sh- should everyone else. I'm not sure about... and don't like Disney films. I love Disney films anyway. I, I, this is a really fun. great Christmas movie, even though it's not explicitly about Christmas. But it's snowy, isn't it? Yeah. Is it snowy all the way through? I'm not going to spoil it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, here's a spoiler, though. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to go and see Frozen this weekend uh-huh. with my four-year-old daughter and my partner. And her mum, who's visiting us. Um, check out The View, Stratford. Yeah. So not like a West End cinema. That's going to be £60 for the four of us to go and see what? that film. £60. Is that 3D And that's with well? discounts, that's presumably. Is that with discounts for... For me being ace? No. <laughs> no, because you can't, you can't get a family of four ticket because you've got to have at least two children. What? So unless I dress well, my mother-in-law up in a nappy, mother-in-law, <laughs> which frankly, she's only a few years away from that anyway. Mother-in-law, can she get a pensioner ticket? Uh, well, no, because she's like, she's not quite a pensioner. She's oh, like no. 59 or something. Okay. I look older than she does. Maybe then, I can you get, get the pensioner ticket. Yeah. They can't, they can't challenge you on that shit. Is it, it it's a... <laughs> they can't, like, someone asked me if I was 15 the other day when I went to see a film. Who was asking that? Well, like, the people behind the counter. Okay. All, All right. right. Just checking. Yeah, yeah. You get asked that a lot. I do. I, someone... but, you know, it's actually £57.40 or something, but that's just a ridiculous amount of money for four people to go and see a movie. Yeah. That is stupid. Yeah. I mean, because I, I tend to like, I don't know, I mean, I tend to go to the one, um, it's one on Baker Street, which is quite expensive. But Is that the screen on Baker Street? Uh, new. It's, there's like, I think it might be an Everyman. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, French. Yeah. yeah. Which is quite nice, but that's obviously expensive, but you'd assume it would be. But London is very expensive for cinema. Yeah, but this is like a cinema in a shopping centre, for Christ's sake. Yeah. You know? mm. And it's a view. Yeah. Get over yourself, view. Yeah, get over yourself, view. Stop charging stupid prices. Because then I'm probably going to load up another 20 quid on just some fucking popcorn and a drink. Oh, you think you, you can't get both for 20 quid, Stu? Sorry. Where do you think you live? Yeah. So I'm going to probably go and see it at the Stratford Picture House as well, where I've worked out it's going to be at least 20 quid cheaper. Uh, and it's like an indie cinema, so I feel I should support that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big up your indie cinemas. Big up. What was I talking about? Can't remember. Oh, we're Just talking about Frozen. Raging movie. against the Rage, system. Raging against the machine. God damn it, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> We've had an absolute load of reader FU in this week. Yeah. The first piece of reader feedback is charmingly entitled <clears throat> Cunts. <laughs> oh, With four exclamation marks. And this is from Charlotte. <laughs> and she says, hey, podcast peeps, this is a suggestion for other listeners and two games you should play in the dark with your colleagues surrounding you, ready to laugh as you cry in terror. The first is a mod called The Hidden, a multiplayer game, and there are hilarious clips on YouTube from somebody called Sean Anners. 
You're either the almost invisible, creepy, no longer human thing you must just kill with a knife, or you're the security guards who are trying to shoot it. That sounds like fun. That does mm. sound like fun. Sounds like fun. And the second game is called SCP Containment Breach. It's pretty buggy, but awesome when you're a lifetime prisoner who's given a chance at freedom if you do some stuff for a company. The shit goes down again. YouTube is a brilliant resource. Again, play these in a dark room with people watching. Keep up the brilliant, awkward silences. Okay. Next. Good. Good. Right, um, yeah, some, 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 another bit of feedback. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Max Fuller has um, written in, and he's saying, so last week you talked about the Ashes game being cancelled after being released on PC. What is the process of getting a game on Steam? Surely there's some sort of game tester or something that checks whether the game is an absolute rubbish and the game engine actually works. Oh, you're probably just paying a lot of money, don't you? I don't really know what the... I'm not quite I, sure how it works. Is. Is. Like, you would have thought, you know... It's been published by 505, that you they would have some kind of QA team. You'd think. But I, I don't know. I think there's probably something interesting. But this, hap this does happen do. quite a bit. I mean, I can't remember the name of that zombie game that was like a rip-off oh, of there... DayZ. It was something oh. Z. It had Z in it. But there was a rip-off of a zombie game anyway, and it went on, and it was shit and clearly just a cash grab. War Z? Something like War Z. And it just it went up, was shit. And then got pulled down. Yeah. So I, I think I don't actually think there is that much of a, a check. I think if you're a reputable developer like 505 is, mm. Steam is like, yeah, sure. And then it relies on reader or like user feedback to kind of then investigate. So it is doing due diligence now. But I think, imagine it must get quite a lot of. But like Valve has a really good reputation in and out of the industry, right? So surely it, I, I can't imagine they like. Do you get like a money back guarantee with Valve games anyway? If you download something you don't like it, can you get your money back? I don't know. I don't use. With Valve games, mm. probably with Valve games. Probably I don't know about Valve. the other things on Steam. But yeah, um, I, I, mean, I know I think with that War Z, I think a lot of people got refunds. Basically, I don't use Steam that often and I'm just making stuff up right now. So. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I like it because you, you're, 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 you've got authority in Gravitas. So yeah. it sounds as if you know what you're talking about. I tried it's to get it for cold, Dota well. 2, but it didn't um, work on my computer. So oh, oh, Sad story. Yeah. Fun fact. I wonder if any of the boxed versions of that uh, Ashes game have made it into the wild. Because I think they'd be quite collectible. <laughs> you can't put, you can't pull that. Yeah. Well, because didn't they just They've release? They've all been burned and yeah. put into a little tiny trophy. A little, a little see what you did there. <laughs> there you go. Very enjoyable. Chris Tilly was going to read this piece of feedback out, but Chris Tilly's not here. No. No. Where's Chris Tilly? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. <laughs> I suddenly burst into opera. It's beautiful. Ah, stroke of the week. Mark Hardin <laughs> says, New from New Orleans. New Orleans, Louisiana, today. the U.S. of A. Go Saints! He said that, not me. I have no idea who they are. Southampton fan. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to UK, uh, IGN UK podcast episode 207, mm -hmm. uh, speaking of next-gen gaming and, and a small part about the Dallas Buyers Club, uh, which is the film that's coming out. Okay. You asked to write in if A, if someone's met Matthew McConaughey, or B, purchased a PS4 or Xbox One. I says Mark, would like to chime in on both. Yes. Oh. Boom. Like, did Matthew McConaughey buy him, Yeah, did Matthew McConaughey buy him an Xbox One? Not only have I met Matthew McConaughey, but I worked with him on Dallas Buyers Club oh. as an extra and in a feature cool. role. And I'm in the film mostly as a buyer of the AZT drug, but later in the film I'm one of his employees. And he has actually attached a picture of him close to Matthew McConaughey. That's cool. I haven't brought the picture. No, I saw the picture. I looked yeah. at that feedback. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, he also purchased a PS4 on day one on the November the 15th, 2013. 
which is the American military, American military release date. My overall experience with PS4 has been great. Digging the social features and enjoying sharing content with friends. You guys rock at IGN. Thanks for helping stocking Walmart shelves tolerable. Ah, you're Good. welcome. Glad to hear it. There you go. So we have some more feedback, yet more, from Steve Radcliffe. Um, and he offers some insights on the last podcast we chatted about, the license fee. Oh, yeah. So he's kind of explained how it works. Mm -hmm. So you only need a, li a license fee if you watch broadcast television. So that's any mainstream broadcast on BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and 5, Sky, as it's going out in any format. So anything you might stream or record to watch later on Sky+. Plus. And that's also if you watch live stuff on iPlayer. Mm and so on and so forth. You don't need a TV license for watching on-demand content, he said. So you can watch iPlayer to your heart's content without a TV license, but if you stream any live TV channel, you do need one. So it doesn't matter if you watch iPlayer on your TV. It's another myth that, another myth that you need a license if you so much as own a TV. He also says the confusion comes because TV licensing keeps details like this quite quiet. Um, also, the talk of detective vans is entirely fictional. They rely on disgruntled exes and neighbors and windows without curtains which I think a mistake anyway, yeah. to tip them off about offenders. And no technology exists to definitively determine through a wall whether someone is using a TV or a computer to watch a live broadcast. Um, the vans they occasionally drive around have no tech on board. It's just all for show. Um, he says, hope this clears up. Don't watch broadcast TV and don't have a license, but all for supporting the BBC anyway. If TV licensing didn't make the rules so murky. There you go. So I, think, I think what we get out of that mm. is that if you are listening to this podcast in America, you do have to pay $100 a year but I can sort that out for you. In fact, I'll do it for half price. If you send me $50 a year to my PayPal account, I'll sort out your license. True, really. And he'll yeah. chuck in a picture of an Xbox One for free. Absolutely. There you go. Mm. The dream. Lovely stuff. Yeah. Uh, Gareth Roberts, thanks for reading out my email, he says. As asked, here are the rules for drinking FIFA. Gentlemen, shot glasses at the moment. <laughs> yeah. If you concede a goal, you do two fingers. Lads. <laughs> Yellow card is one finger. Well, well, I missed the first bit. What are we doing with fingers? Oh, fingers, of course, are a measure of alcohol that you can visually check oh. against a glass or bottle. Yes. Yeah. Red card, two fingers. Concede a penalty, two fingers. And if a shot is not replayed, you get one finger. What's that mean, if a shot's not replayed? Uh, means. Probably not like the slow motion replay. All oh, right, so if you skip it... Yeah, or sometimes you don't, just don't do it. Oh, okay. Of course, international... No pausing is allowed. International drinking rules forbid the use of the word beginning with F, so you have to use digits instead. So, Stuart Reed, you have quite a few, few shots to consume there. A little, ah! bit, a little bit of bounce for the younger readers there. I don't uh, get it. No? Okay. I don't what's going on anymore. Um, okay, well, actually, building on that, Adam Bond has said in the last podcast we had an email from someone who plays FIFA drinking games. Yep. I thought you might like to hear about a game my flatmates and I used to play a lot in my first year of uni, a drinking adaptation of the original Tekken. I like Tekken. Tekken's a good game. Despite this only being a few years ago, we played games on the PS1 because the PS3 had broken and he couldn't afford to replace it. Okay, simple rules. You take a drink at the start of the battle, the loser has to drink again, and the winner stays on. Um, some special down-your-drink rules, so if you've got a perfect defeat, or if you lose playing as the same character as your opponent. Great fun because the game's so quick and easy to play, and you get a go very quickly. There's a quick turnover. Uh, the non-gamers were able to join in, and most importantly, you get pissed really, really quickly. Um, I've actually played that with Tekken Tag Tournament 2 when I was at university, and I can confirm, you get fucked really quick. <laughs> it's a lovely, lovely game. So there you go. Everyone join in. Great. Um, Mark, <laughs> K good. Mark K has um, written in to say, the pod is now fully controllable. Hooray! No skipping behavior. Thank you very much. And he also went, P.S., yes, patronizing though it was, the pronouncement of Blackburn Rovers was a little more accurate. 
I've noticed the East Lanks accent does come across a little farmerish to the rest of the population. Oh, well, I don't care. It's not patronising when I do it. No, it's not. It'd be patronising if you did it. But it wouldn't be patronising if, if I did a proper farmer's accent because I'm from Devon. Ooh, oh, it's hey, minefield. So minefield. No, they bloody talk like that down there. <laughs> Whereas up Blackburn, it's, it's probably slower, is it? Because they talk quite fast down in Plymouth. Like that. What are you doing? That's just... It makes me uncomfortable. That's it's like when I do my Welsh accent and I get told off and I'm not invited back. Stop being racialist. Do your Welsh accent. Dance monkey. No, I talk like this. Like, so when I go home, I talk like this to my parents because this is what I'm like. That's Asian. I... That is racist, Stuart Reid. Well, it's not. It's, isn't it? No, I know. Well, just because I've been on holiday and I'm really tanned, that is a bit racist. I didn't even mention your Dusky Hue. <laughs> dusky Hue, which actually is my um, Welsh original name. Welsh name, yeah. There you go. H-U-W, obviously. They don't do the news. Uh, uh, next bit of feedback is also saying whatever you did, the variable bit rate changey thingy worked. Shame you've not fixed the variable quality though. Hey. Hey. This, guy, this guy's called Kings. He's called Kings. Kings. Tekken. Okay. Um, another bit from William. So it's just want to say the last three IGN UK podcasts haven't been able to be downloadable via the podcast webpage. I don't use any Apple products like many people, so can't download via iTunes. Click on the last three podcasts, just goes to a 404 page. And on several podcasts that have a download hyperlink, just downloads a past podcast. <laughs> oh, we fixed one thing, but everything else is fucked. Okay. All right, that's something to look into. Yeah, that's something that's an exciting afternoon for me. Uh, it's a little bit of a fixer-upper. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting there. Settle back, kids. I've got a great one for you now. Here we go. Uh, this, is from, uh, this is from Nigel Jeffrey. Yew tree. Yeah, yew tree. <laughs> Can we get a yew tree for the office and just like whenever someone says something inappropriate? Thing. There's lots of sort of plath poems about yew trees. They're it associated is. with death. Because I believe I'm right in saying that Voldemort's wand is also made of yew. Yeah, that's probably... In Harry Potter, deliberately. Slighten the tone. Mm. (laughs) Nigel Jeffrey says, Imagine the scene. It's 1am and you told your wife or your girlfriend, your husband or your boyfriend, your pet or your imaginary armadillo that you'll go to bed as soon as you finish this project, which absolutely must be done for the morning. Mm. You turn on your PS4. I mean, gaming is a project, right? Yeah. You slip on your headphones, safe in the knowledge that your metamorphosis into the world's most lethal killing machine will be kept secret from those you love. But wait, what's that the sound of a clip change coming from your groin? The phrase, give me five minutes while I reload, suddenly seems scarily appropriate. But no, it's the controller nestled in your lap. (laughs) Once your alluring accomplice, it now betrays you. The revelation of the traitorousness filling you with despair (laughs) as a figure appears in the doorway, judging you as you sit there in your onesie like a deer caught in the headlight. Oh, I thought you meant like a deer as in like an old woman because you're wearing a onesie. Well, all this to say... The old deer in the headlights. What's the deal with the DualShock 4 speaker? What happens if you use headphones via your TV or sound system instead of the DualShock jack? How will the speaker and headset jack affect gaming headphones with built-in mics? If you turn off the DualShock speaker volume, do you miss out on any audio from the game? Since the DS4 can charge all the systems on standby, will the speaker be used for subliminal audio messaging? From Nigel. <laughs> from Nigel. Thanks for that, Nigel. Hmm. We've got an interesting intonation. <laughs> Not answering any of those questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't know. Um, you can't turn the speaker off. And... You can't turn it off. I know Alex is a, Alex is a big fan of the... Sorry. Um, Alex is a big fan of the speaker in the... <laughs> I think it's great. The first time I picked up a uh, DualShock 4, I thought it was really, really good. Yeah. Ooh, I thought it was like like magic. magic. I, like... I still haven't played mine. Mine, mine oh, I didn't even sure. buy one. So I, I trump you. 
Yeah, well, Ooh. boy, you just go, you went and played it in a, what, a trump, game. I <laughs> yeah. trump in your milkshake. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Completely different film. Completely different film. Ooh. Chocolate. You're, never mind. Who's up? Number nine. Me. Uh, so Rob Holiday has said... Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Yeah. Hi guys, just thought I'd send you a quick email or for clarification on the Doctor's Regenerations as you didn't seem to get a proper handle on it. The addition of John Hurt does not make Matt Smith the 12th, the last Doctor. It makes Capaldi 13th the last. Doctor Who Law originally said 12 regenerations, which means 13 Doctors, as the first incarnation is not from a regeneration. So Doctor 1, then you have Regeneration 1, which makes it Doctor 2, then Regeneration 2, which makes it Doctor 3. Well, all right, all right, we get the idea. Yeah, so on. So anyway, Regeneration 12, Doctor 13. So it's only um, before Capaldi leaves that they'll have to explain it away, slash create a mystery about the next Doctor. Mm. Um, he also makes out the point, and this was a point also pointed out by Denny Bryant, um, that we apparently said Stephen Moffat seemed to be having a dig at Russell Davis's era oh, over okay. childish language such as timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. Yeah, and he said, um, I thought I'd just point out the phrase in question came from the episode Blink, written by Stephen Moffat. So basically, Krupa... You've let us all down. It's all shit. Yeah, yeah, you've let us all down. It's all gone and, from um, rat cock. I know. Well, I don't know why you're worth 60 million, but there we go. So, <laughs> I now have another piece of feedback, because that last uh, one was meant to be read by Tilly, but he's gone. Yeah, he's... He's just gone to a better place. Um, so, Michael from Lebanon, New Hampshire of US of A. When he said Lebanon, I assumed actual Lebanon rather yeah, me than too. fake Lebanon. Um, he's a recent subscriber to the show and he loves it. Wondering what he, th what we think in regards to not being able to play uh, free games you get from being a PlayStation Plus member when you don't renew your subscription. So Xbox lets you keep and play free games even if you're no longer a gold member. Sony gives out better games, but in reality, all you're doing is renting them. Well, I'd, li I'd like to interject there if I may. Yeah. And Dan, I'm sure you've got an, op yeah. an opinion on this as well, but that's the thing. The PlayStation Plus is such good value mm. and you get so many really good games I think it's only fair that when you let your membership lapse, you, you no longer get to keep them. Yeah, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, because if you don't they want it... They need to know that you're going to keep it. This thing, if you don't want it for a month, you know, just if, if especially in the States, because their games tend to be worse than the ones we get in Europe right. free. So, you know, oh, you don't see anything you fancy next month, you unsubscribe. Then something comes up the next month, you subscribe, then unsubscribe again. Well, yeah. This way, at least, you know, you're, you're there for the long haul. So I think it's... And you are good. renting them, but if you keep it going, you, it's like owning them pretty much, like yeah. long-term loans. Yeah, they're not going to take them back yeah. from you unless you stop subscribing, in which case... And especially now with the PS4, the fact that you have to subscribe to play online for lots of things. Mm. You know, I, I, I think that's perfectly legit. We're saying, don't worry your pretty head about it. You lovely little Lebanese man. Is that racist? No, he's not from Lebanon. He's from in Lebanon, that, in that USA. Case, factually inaccurate. And as a member of the IGN editorial team, I should slap you down for that. You should, you're right. But Imagine you know what? Being factually inaccurate on the podcast. Oh, God, if only. Don't do who regenerations. <laughs> Fine. Every week, innit? I know. It's been a long one. Is it you or is it me? What number is that? We need uh, 11. This is a little, uh, a little peek behind the curtain of the magic of how the Withered podcast. man. We need number 11. That's number 11 over there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is from Ron. Really? Ron, <laughs> Ron is in a do Ron one. Um, he lives in Toronto, Canada. Toronto. We've got I bet a, he's never heard that before. We've got a lot of um, a lot of international today. Yeah. It's very nice. Thank you. I'd like to briefly show my experience seeing the trailer for the new Old Boy movie. It looked terrible from the get-go, but when the title Old Boy displayed, my reaction was a visceral and boiling rage in my gut. Wow. Every day for you, Stu? Yes. <laughs> Wake up. I never used to fern cotton. I oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. don't. I know. P poor fern. <laughs> poor fern. Not poor fern, no. Add Zoe Ball to that list. 
That's how he pulled the list. What a twat. What list is this now? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the hit list. I admit those words you sound... Don't. What? No, just don't go near that subject. <laughs> I admit those words sound overly dramatic, but I've never had such a powerfully negative reaction to a remake. I'm curious if any of you have ever felt open anger or hostility towards a movie because it was based on an original you loved. Yes, that, that slew of Michael Caine remakes from the early 2000s. Mm. Sleuth, Italian Job, Alfie. Psycho. Oh, Alfie was, Alfie was... I think the worst for me is Psycho. Because it is so utterly pointless because it's a shot-for-shot shot remake. Yeah. If you're going to remake something, I kind of don't mind if you do something else with it. You adapt it, update it, change it. You know, people have been doing that with Shakespeare, Shakespeare for years. But if you're just going to do the exact same thing, it's utterly pointless. Mm. I still think of that Psycho remake as more of a kind of art project than anything else. Indulgent. Yeah. Yes. Big art project. I want to do an art project. Like that 24-hour Psycho as well, where they slow the film right down. Oh. So that Psycho lasts 24 hours. <sighs> Geogone. Imagine if you got there. Halfway through, oh, I missed it. Yeah. It's 12 hours late. A little shorter than some of the Lord of the Ring films, though, so. Hey! Oh, you got there just in time for the end credits. Yeah. Three hours later, you leave. <laughs> Amy Kybert. Hello! Hello. Uh, the moment video games had the biggest impact on her life. This is... Oh. Well, mine is when my dad got a PS1 and I wasn't ever allowed to play it, but I was just mesmerised watching my dad play Tomb Raider. At the time, I literally had no idea what was going on, but it was just brilliant. I suppose it was quite pixely back then. Yeah. Yeah. Also, when my nan first bought me my first console... Uh, that was solely mine. We were going on holiday and we walked into Dixon's and she asked the cashier for a Playboy. Hey! The guy had no idea what was going on, but my cousin explained I wanted a Game Boy Color. By the time we returned off holiday, my thumbs were totally fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Love the podcast, has me in fits. Keep up the good work, Amy. Thank you, Amy. Uh, thank you for all your feedback this week. It's been quite a tremendous haul of wonderful feedback. IGN underscore UK feedback at IGN.com if you would like to get in touch with us. Yes. Don't bother with Twitter or Facebook because we never really remember to read out comments that people put on them. Yeah. Do we? email us. Yeah. We yeah. do have a look on them, but still tweet us about site stuff. Other stuff, yeah. yeah. By all means. The lovely Mr. Butler. Are we doing a normal podcast next week? I can't remember. Yes. It's normal podcast next week and then it's the Christmas quiz week yes. after. Yes. And then a preview of 2014 maybe? I yeah. think so, yeah. Like that. that sounds good. I think that's the plan. Uh, so yeah, if you want to ask us what we're looking forward to in 2014, email us at the usual address. If you'd like to set a question for the quiz, don't email the usual address. Email me directly. Oh, which would be sreid, S-R-E-I-D, at IGN.com. And then That's I That's can... not right, it's S-R-E-I-D. What did I just say? You said S-E-I-D. S no, S-R-E-I-D. Okay, well, as long as you said that. I'm going to say again, S-R-E-I-D at IGN.com. If you've got a question okay. for the quiz. Uh, right, time now for our second batch of special guests on the show. Uh, new film coming out, Kill Your Darlings, which uh, is about the beat poets, isn't it, Dan? It is. Who were, who, uh, I can't remember any of their names now. Well, Jack Kerouac. Well, that movement, yeah. Yeah. Jack Ginsburg. Kerouac. Ginsburg. Not Charlotte Ginsburg. Alan Ginsburg. Lawrence Ferengetti. Yeah. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Lawrence Lowe and Bowen. Um, uh, so anyway. Car Caroline Quentin. Chris Tilly. <laughs> Chris Tilly caught up with Dane DeHaan and the little fella from Harry Potter. The little fella. When you say caught up, I've got this image of Chris just chasing them. <laughs> Come back! I've got another <laughs> question to ask, ask you. Questions. <laughs> 
so we all sat, he sat down, down in a very echoey studio. And Hi, this is Chris here with Daniel Radcliffe and Dane DeHaan, the stars of Kill Your Darlings, which is a film about the friendship that formed between some of the greatest American writers of the 20th century while they're at university. Uh, but there's a bit more to the story than that, guys, so maybe you could elaborate and tell, tell us a little bit about who you play in the movie. Sure. Well, uh, I play Allen Ginsberg, and I play him at the age of sort of 17, 18, going off to Columbia University for the first time, where he meets Lucian Carr, played by Dane. And um, Alan falls sort of head over heels in love with Lucian. He's this very charismatic, kind of Byronic, uh, sort of mad, bad and dangerous to know sort of figure. And, um, and that's very attractive to Alan at that point. And, and Lucian really um, sort of helps Alan discover who he is as a writer as well as a person. And uh, is a very influential person in Alan's life. And then, uh, you know, the story gets more involved uh, on, on Lucian's side. Yeah, and while, while all this is happening, Lucian is dealing with uh, a relationship that he's had with an older man uh, from the time he was 14 to now when he's 21, and um, he actually ends up murdering that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not all fun and games. It's not all fun and games, but there is some fun and games. Yeah. I do like to say that, because it is, it's the danger when you're talking about a film like this is that you do just end up talking about how, how dark and intense it is, and it is, of course, but, um, you know, there were also... You know, a group of young men running around New York in the 1940s, sort of tearing it up. So there was there. You have to capture some of that fun and excitement. Yeah, as well. so that's they, in the film they were having a good time at uni, and there was sex and drugs yeah. and, and booze and sex, drugs and poetry. All of the above. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what what drew you to the script initially? Really, it was you know you don't read that much that is of that uh, higher standard. I mean, um, even if you take out of the equation the fact that all these people are very well-known, famous, uh, interesting characters, um, you know, you, you take away their fame and it's still a really fascinating story and it's a story about, um, you know, what it was to be gay in the 1940s and it's a story about, uh, you know, sexual and intellectual self-discovery and, uh, and, and growing up, basically, and, and those relationships that we have to sort of that we have to recognise are toxic and move on from if we're to change as a person. And, uh, but yeah, it's, as you say, it's about being young, basically, at its heart. And, and how did you guys prepare for the movie? I, I believe there was a lot of Allen Ginsberg diaries. Were they a help? Did they inform your Yeah, I mean, I, the main things for me were working on the accent and just, um, you know, uh, reading his diaries, as you say, and, and looking into as much of that as I could. And I guess there's less, there's less about Lucian out there, so... There is less, but, uh, but there are stories and stuff that uh, you can find in his diaries and in correspondence between Ginsburg and Kerouac. And, you know, if you start digging, um, at least at this time, you know, Lucian was documented because he was there and uh, he was a part of their lives, so they talked about him a lot. Um, so going back to that source material, I think, uh, was definitely helpful. And were you able to talk to people that had met the two guys and knew them? Um, I've met uh, a few people that have met Alan, but only really in the latter stages of his life. I don't really know anyone that met him when he was 17. Um, and I, you were just saying you met somebody who met Lucian recently? Yeah, I just met someone that had met Lucian. But again, like Lucian was such a different person uh, from this at this point of his life than he was after he got out of jail for the murder that I, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't worth trying to find somebody who had known Lucian later on in life for the film because it just wouldn't have been helpful. No. And he distanced himself from the events and tried to kind of sweep it under the carpet. Did, did you ever hear from any of his family about 
you know, their thoughts on you making a movie about it and kind of bringing it all up again? Uh, no, not at all. Um, but, you know, I think it was something that Lucian within his life tried really hard uh, to make sure the story wasn't told. But I think ultimately it's a story that the world should know and a story the world deserves to hear. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, there's definitely responsibility to... Uh, honor it and to do it justice, but um, just because one person didn't want the story to be told doesn't mean that it shouldn't be told. No. Good answer. Well, yeah. That's true. <laughs> also, it isn't. It's an incredibly culturally significant event, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of it being the catalyst that then launched all these guys as writers. And because it was such an impactful event for all of them, it, in some way it did inform who they became as writers and knowing him. So it is, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, a gratuitous retelling. There is a purpose behind it. And do you have a favourite of Allen Ginsberg's poems? I mean, look, I, I, the, a poem that I looked at, I ended up looking at a lot was Kaddish, which because it's all about his, it's a lot to do with him and his mother, and that's kind of one of the central relationships in the film. And it's a poem that I honestly didn't really understand before I did the movie, and <laughs> through doing the movie, I, I understood it a lot more and, and connected to it more. And I don't know if you guys write in your spare time, or did this film maybe inspire you to write, or how, how do you feel on that? Well, I share a similar uh, opinion on writing that Lucian Carr does in the film that I'm, you know, I'm actually kind of terrified to write. Uh, that's just not, it, it's just something that I think is a very vulnerable uh, place and I would rather leave it up to other people to write things um, and then I, I'll act them. <laughs> I get that feeling every day, to be honest. It's I, I, painful. I, I do enjoy writing, but, um, you know, I definitely, uh, I, I wrote some, some very bad teenage poetry and some slightly alright teenage poetry, but um, yeah, it's not something I, I definitely think I'd want to concentrate on. I'm trying to write scripts these days. Oh, really? Poetry, yeah. Have you got anything going at the moment? or? Well, yeah, I'm writing stuff myself, but nothing that is uh, in any way close to being mm. yeah, enacted. I've been like that for about 10 years. Right, well, yeah, I'm sure I might be in another eight. <laughs> um, and what do you think your guys' chances are of winning Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards next year? I think they're getting better all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't know of a kiss that's better than our kiss. So. It's pretty hot. We've had yeah. a great kiss. And, May you the know, best men win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, does everyone, in, uh, you know, get, get voting or however you do the MTV Awards? Is it, do you send in a ballot? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's online. Uh, probably. We'll figure. We'll start the campaign here. Um, we've also got some questions from our readers, if that's okay. Oh, yeah. Let me just grab these. Um, first up is from uh, Dara O'Connor, who asks, uh, who is your inspiration when you're acting? Who's your favourite actor? Uh, I mean, I've loads of people that I've worked with that I really uh, look up to. And yeah, I guess it's been I ridiculous mean, who you've got to work with. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it is for, for like everyone. I mean, I, I get that. And still, but not just on Potter, like, mm. you know. Um, there's a lot, I mean... Gary Oldman and David Thewlis, I remember when I met them at a very young age, they were just their approach to acting, which was very, uh, both very serious, but they also had a lot of fun at the same time mm -hmm. um, on set. I always really admired that about them. But yeah, I mean, I think I've worked with so many people that I just like admire, and uh, you know, and including Dane and Ben Foster and all these people on this movie. So it's, it's don't make me pick. Okay. Shall I not make you pick either, Dan? I can do a top three favourite actors. <laughs> go, go, go. Uh, James Dean, Phil Hoffman, and Al Pacino are my three top three favourite actors. That's strong. Thank strong you. Strong choices. Thanks. Um, another one for you, Dane, um, from Harvey Anderson. Um, asking about Spider-Man 2. He asks, um, in, what is your, in what way is your version of Harry Osborn unique compared to James Franco's portrayal in the 
Well, um, you know, James Franco was a, the Harry Osborne of 10 years ago, and I'm the Harry Osborne of today. <laughs> um, and it takes place today. So there's a whole new culture surrounding it um, and a whole new modern twist on, on what I'm doing. And what was it like coming from kind of a modestly budgeted superhero movie to a juggernaut like this one? The sets were a lot nicer. <laughs> and we had a lot more time, uh, for sure, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, You've kind of done a superhero movie of your own in the shape of horns, I would say. Have you uh, read kind the book? of, yeah, absolutely. That's if you like. Uh, how was how was that? What was what was it like shooting that one? Maybe was, tell us a bit about the premise if people don't know. Yeah, sure. I'll synopsize horns for you. <laughs> um, horns is essentially about a, a, a guy I play called Ig Parish who wakes up one morning. Um, his girlfriend has been raped and murdered months ago. The entire town has vilified him and accused him of doing it and thinks he has done it. Um, and then one day, after a night of drinking and inappropriate sex, he wakes up with uh, horns growing out of his head. And uh, it's sort of, he goes on like a three-day ride of just um, basically, he realises that these horns make people confess their deepest, darkest stuff to him. So he uses that power to uh, figure out who really killed his girlfriend. But it's this kind of amazing, grotesque... Um, tragic love story along the way like it's 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 a film that defies categorization and i kind of like that about it i wish i had that power as an interviewer that would be useful <laughs> what, what oh yeah make just make people confess everything yeah I, but then I, you might have to have horns grow out of your head and would you want that well what's it like having what uh, what's I, it like walking around with those things it's kind your... of great like <laughs> i i spend the i have in the last you know the last third of the movie I have a huge pair of horns growing out of my head and I have a six foot python wrapped around me um, and that was it's it's all pretty empowering I've got to be honest it's like I, holding a snake a snake is similar I imagine to what holding a gun is like it's just sort of uh, you know that line in the Simpsons where Homer says I felt great when he was holding a gun he says I felt great mild like God must feel when he's holding a gun <laughs> um, and um, but yeah it's it's just it's just a very it's like having the best prop in the world basically. yeah well I don't need them on my head I've always got the horn anyway there you go. Um, uh, Dane, I've got a question from Matt Chaplin, who says, uh, did the puppet in Through the Never freak you out? Oh, I loved that guy. Yeah, little man. He was made by, like, some magical puppet maker. And I loved that thing so much. He didn't freak me out. We, were, we became good friends. Good me and that. little man. Um, I, I was talking to James McAvoy the other day. Oh, cool. And he just started rehearsals with you yeah. on Frankenstein. So how is that going for you? It's good. We've only had one rehearsal day so far. We're actually rehearsing a lot more, I think, next week. Um, but yeah, he's fantastic. And we had a whole meeting about the scripts and, and just talking it through and rehearsing bits and pieces. And it was, uh, yeah, just he's fantastic. I, I'm already, you know, after having one session with him, it's just like, you know, I can tell that he works in the same way I do and wants the same things for the film which is for it to be you know you're always uh, looking for ways to, to to lift it together and to you know to, to, to you know see what the combination of you brings to the table and, and work on chemistry so it's not just what you've got on the page and there's there's more than that going on which is it's that's why rehearsal time is lovely because you can get to sort of establish that chemistry and can you tell me, tell me a little bit about your Igor yeah uh, yeah I mean he's um, he is hunchbacked and there is uh, a uh, I don't know what would be saying too much at this point but he's definitely been given more of a backstory than you ever have seen before and he's sort of um, and and hopefully a much deeper sort of more interesting character than he's been uh, granted the, the uh, privilege of being in the past 
But yeah, I don't want to say too much about the backstory just because I don't know what information's out there mm. and I don't know what people already know and what I should be yeah, doing. Yeah, and James myself. was just saying it's very much about the friendship between. Well, your yeah, two I mean, characters. that's really, it's, it's about, you know, these guys were. It's about two guys in the 1850s who, you know, is at the forefront of science. We're at the peak of the Industrial Revolution in Britain. And these guys were around at a time when scientists weren't just thinking about observing nature and documenting it, but they were talked about having creative forces of actually dominating it and and you know it's it's the it's a battle over morality basically this guy um, Victor Frankenstein is a, a genius who I am having to sort of I'm both working with him and we fire off each other creatively Victor and Igor but uh, but at the same time I kind of have to keep an eye out for his morality because he's he's so single-minded that it's uh, it becomes a danger cool I can't wait to see it cool um, we had a bunch of Potter questions that come in, um, all of, some of them are a bit ridiculous. Okay. But I wanted to ask you do, you, do you watch the films back these days? No. no. Not even at Christmas when no. the rest of us are watching them? No, why would I? <laughs> no. Because they're good films. But, yeah, but not like you don't want anything you're in at Christmas, because no. that's just weird. You don't like yeah. sit your family and say, let's watch something I'm in. Fair enough. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a lot of us were surprised, though, when Jo Rowling came out and said she was going to write this screenplay. Yes. Fantastic Beast. Did you a know about, Did you not know about that in advance? <laughs> no, I didn't know. And what's your thoughts on, on her returning to it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. I think there is still definitely, obviously, uh, a huge hunger for, for more of that world and, and um, people definitely miss it. And so uh, I, th I think she's clearly feel comfortable stepping back to it after stepping away and having had success with other ventures. And yeah, I think it's, uh, it's great for everybody that's, you know, everybody that's very excited about it. And there are a lot of people who are. Well, I kind of thought she would never go back. I thought, you know, she told the story she wanted to tell. But now well, she... Well, I think that's the thing. I mean, I, as far as I'm aware, it's completely unconnected to anything she's told before. And it's, uh, it's I don't know what the story of it's going to be. I, I do know nothing about it. You know, the only things I know, I've heard from journalists in interviews. Yeah. Um, so, like, so, and, 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 you know, there's no reason that they should, um, should tell me anything because I'm, I'm not, not involved. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, so I, I don't know a huge amount, but I guess it's just uh, some sort of, trip through the world of um, beasts and stuff. I, mean, I really don't know. This, I'm so uneducated about it, it's embarrassing. And if in a future one of these films there's ever, ever a part for a grown-up Harry Potter, would it uh, interest you? Or no, I mean, not particularly. I don't want to, like, I was somebody in an interview the other day asked me that question. I kind of, you know, I, I, you don't want to say no because it, it just sounds too, like you're being dismissive and then that sort of gets taken out of context on the internet and people start going, oh, he's turned his back on it and it's this and that. And it's not any of that. But, like, the reality is I will have worked for some time at that stage to, to get people to see me as an actor rather than just that character. So I'm not sure what the benefits would necessarily be of, of stepping back to it. So I can't write the headline, Daniel Radcliffe hates Harry Potter. You can't, I'm afraid. No, <laughs> That's fair enough. Uh, we got a question from Joshua William Batch, who says, uh, would you ever considering doing work, um, aside from acting, are you producing or directing, uh, Dane? Um, gosh, maybe, like at some point, but uh, right now, you know, the getting's good in the acting world, and that's what I've always loved to do, so I'm just enjoying that. Uh, maybe later on in life I'll, I'll want to take on different roles, but right now it's, it's all about the acting. What about you, I mean, pretty much exactly the same answer as Dane. I, I'm very focused on acting right now with no plans to sort of... You know, I write, but that's just for myself more than anything else at the moment. So uh, yeah, one day, like I would love to, I would love to direct, 
Um, but uh, I think that's a way off because I'm, I'm quite happy acting right now. Do you feel like you learned a lot through all the different directors that you work with through the Harry Potter films? And then yeah, through through Potter and now and now on to these other um, projects. Yeah, absolutely. I, I learn. I like to think that I've learned something from every job that I take with me to the next. And uh, you know, I hope that applies to directing as well. Like I'm, I hope I'm kind of uh, picking up information as I go along. Mm. Cool. And so we know that you're doing Frankenstein next. Uh, what are you up to uh, next day, huh? Uh, next I guess you wrapped on Spider-Man, is that right? Yeah, we wrapped Spider-Man a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, next, The next film I'm filming is called Life. Uh, Anton Corbin is going to direct it, and I play James Dean in it. Ah. Yeah. And a fan of James Dean, I believe, I've heard. <laughs> yeah, where'd you hear that? <laughs> so um, what period of, of James Dean's life is this going to... Uh, it's about two weeks of his life right before East of Eden came out. So kind of before most people really knew uh, who he was, but right before he was about to become like this thing. And it, uh, it's about a relationship between James Dean and a photographer named Dennis Stock, who followed him around for two weeks for a photojournalism thing for Life magazine. And um, a lot of the most iconic images of James Dean came from those two weeks. Cool, great. I can't wait to see it. Well, thanks a lot for coming in, guys. Thank you. Um, yeah, good to Thank meet you. you. Much. Nice good to meet you. Thank you. Um, Kill Your Darlings is out on Friday, December the 6th. And uh, for more news on that and all of the projects these guys have coming up, keep it locked to IGN. And that's it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure no, to have the company. <laughs> it's been lovely, Stuart. Have you enjoyed yourself? Yeah. Have you pleasured yourself? Always. Good. Luke Kamali, Daniel Kruper, Stuart Reed, out of here. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.